Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everyone. My name is Dwayne Osterlin, and I'm your host of the Addicted Mind podcast, and this is episode eight. We have a great guest today. Her name is Dr. Jessica Naughton, and she is a licensed clinical psychologist who specializes in working with combat veterans who are struggling with post-traumatic stress disorder, or also known as PTSD. And I'm really excited that she's going to be on the, the podcast today because one of the things that I've seen a lot is veterans come in who are dealing with some type of addiction and underlying that addiction is post-traumatic stress disorder. So here they have all the symptomology of post-traumatic stress and we're going to go into uh, detail what that is and what that looks like. And then um, they're trying to cope with it by either using a substance or a behavior to deal with all the all the symptomology to deal with, you know, all the, the, the mood swings, the intense emotions, the nightmares, unable to sleep, all those kind of things. And uh, they turn to an addiction to, to cope. So I'm very excited. She's going to, she's going to talk about how they, at the VA, how they work with this and, and, and how they treat it. And what are some of the things that they do to help our veterans uh, get better and do better and thrive if they're struggling with this issue. So very excited. Stay tuned. And uh, I hope you enjoy it. So I'm very excited to have our guest today. Her name is Dr. Jessica Naughton, and she specializes in combat PTSD. She's a clinical psychologist, and uh, I'm so excited that you're here. So do you want to introduce yourself? Yes, I'm very excited to be here. Um, as you were saying, I'm going to be starting again at the Long Beach VA in the Combat PTSD program. I did my previous internship and fellowship training there in the Combat B PTSD program. Um, so I'm excited to be back in that role and also coordinating with the Substance Abuse Treatment Clinic to get help to 
are veterans suffering from both PTSD and substance use addiction problems. Oh, great, great. So um, I'm going to tell the audience a little bit uh, about how how we met. Um, our kids were going to the same school, yep. and we bumped into <laughs> each other, and we started talking, and I found out that you were a clinical psychologist and that you specialized in, specialized in combat PTSD. And in my practice, I had had clients come in who were combat veterans and struggled with addiction disorders and, and um, you know, so we started talking and I said, hey, you got to come on the podcast <laughs> and, and share your knowledge because this is such an important topic for so many people. And so I said, come on. And so here we are. So I'm, <laughs> I'm kind of excited that you're here. And so let's jump right in. Okay. Let's just talk about what what is PTSD and when we're dealing with veterans, what does it look like for someone who doesn't, you know, we hear that word all the time, right? right? All over the place. People are talking about post-traumatic stress disorder, but a lot of people don't know what that is or what that means or what that looks like. Mm -hmm. Can you give us some examples? Yeah. So, I mean, I'll break it down. So, um, you know, PTSD at its heart is an anxiety disorder. So a lot of the times we see, you know, stress reactions, you know, both physical and psychological symptoms associated with it, right? So in the United States, approximately 70% of people here get exposed to a trauma at some point in their lives, right? Okay. But obviously 70% of people do not have PTSD. It's a much smaller number, right? Okay. So, you know, 10% were people exposed to trauma and within the combat population, it's anywhere from 20 to 25%. So those combat veterans who are exposed to trauma have a 20 to 25% chance of developing PTSD. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And so, and of course, the more deployments that they go on, the higher chance that happens because they're being exposed to more and more trauma and with less and less emotional resources because those are depleted, right? Right. All the time overseas. When we kind of talk about trauma, can you kind of give an example of yeah. what that might mean for somebody who has that? Yeah. So, well, specifically for combat vets, um, you know, a lot of what they're being exposed to is their lives being threatened, seeing their fellow soldiers, Marines' lives being threatened and actually taken, right? So, you know, being in situations where you see a Humvee explode in front of you, um, you know, roadside bombs um, happening in a second, um, but also the trauma of actually having to take a life in some situations, you know, which people don't necessarily think of, but there's a lot of, you know, fallback from that, the reality of having to take a life, even if it is meaning saving somebody else in your unit. Um, so you see a lot of that. Um, they have a lot of exposure to, even if they're not taking lives or witnessing, a lot of, um, you know, unfortunately dead bodies, you know, civilians having to witness kind of the horrors of war, so to speak. Right, right, yeah. You know, and so just a lot of, a lot of death, a lot of you know, losing people over there that are close to them, witnessing that happening, um, bombs going off everywhere, having to be on guard 100% of the time. Um, so those are some of the the traumas that we often see coming back. Right. Yeah. Okay. So they've been exposed to these very intense situations yes. that um, cause them just a lot of emotional distress or... Yeah, and one of the, the things with combat vets is that, you know, they're on the job, right? So one of the things that kind of greatly contributes to the development of PTSD is not being able to process that in the moment, right? But there's no time, right? Something goes off, a bomb explodes, truck gets taken out. You don't have time to sit there and mourn your buddy. You have to keep going, right? You see people falling dead around you. You have to keep shooting. You have to keep, you know, keep safe because there's, you know, 50 other people that 
depend on you being kind of on point, right? right? And so in the moment, they don't get to process it. They don't get to process it the next day, maybe even the next month, right? Because when you're over, you know, in a combat situation, that's not the type of mindset that you have to have. It's not about being in touch with your emotions and being able to make sense of things. It's about being focused 100% of the time so you can do your job and, you know, decrease the amount of casualties that are happening. So I have a question. Yeah. So do a lot of veterans, you know, like in the moment, they, it's not like they have this traumatic event and then they have PTSD. Is PTSD something that starts to develop later? So maybe when they get back or they end their deployment or... Mm -hmm. So exactly. And I'm glad you brought that up, right? Because a lot of, you know, what we call PTSD symptoms, we see as symptoms because they're not adaptive in the civilian world, right? Right. But over there, a lot of those symptoms really make sense. And this is what I try to tell my veterans is like, over there, these things all make sense, right? Like, so one of the critical symptoms is hypervigilance, right? So being on right. guard 100%, not feeling safe, right? Right. Well, that over there in a combat situation is actually beneficial to you, right? Not sleeping super soundly, being able to wake up at the drop of a dime if you hear something, that's beneficial, right? Being able to channel your fear into anger and aggression, that's beneficial in some situations, right? right? Um, being emotionally numb, right? Like I was talking about because you can't process something in the moment, being able to just numb out and move on, that's beneficial in a combat situation. So, um, so when... So does this become more um, apparent when they come home and they're in yes. this kind of what we would consider normal? Right. So, so yeah. So when they start coming home, it's an adjustment to the civilian world where when I look at it, I, I say that their baseline has changed, right? Their baseline to their environment has now changed. Like their nervous system has actually changed on that very hypervigilant level, like there's actual changes that are occurring. And so when you come back to the civilian world where most of the time it's safer, right, you know, right. these, that type of baseline is not going to function anymore. And so that's why we start to see it as problematic because those reactions are no longer adaptive and actually pretty harmful to one's life. Um, you know, dropping to the floor when you hear a loud noise is going to be somewhat you know, harmful to your social situation, right? Right. Being emotionally numb when you're around your family, not going to be helpful. You know, having those anger reactions. So now their 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 behaviors aren't fitting into the context that they're now in when they're exactly. back home. Right. right. You know, and it's very difficult for a lot of veterans to to come back from that, especially like I said, after many, many deployments, because that's not their norm anymore. Right. You know, and right. yeah. So what do we, you know, when we start to talk about the symptoms of PTSD, mm -hmm. so what do we start to see right. or, or how do we start to diagnose it or define it? Right. Or? So we see um, several different clusters of symptoms. So some of the hallmark ones, um, we look at the re-experiencing symptoms. So see, these are things like flashbacks, right? So right. feeling as if you're back in a war situation, Um Nightmares. So waking up, you know, kind of blood curdling nightmares, making your heart race, having panic attacks, um, being triggered, you know, by things in the environment, you know, so they hear a loud noise, all of a sudden their memories get triggered and they become very anxious, scared or angry. Right. So those are a lot of the re-experiencing symptoms that are pretty classic PTSD. Um, the other ones are the hyper-arousal symptoms, so the things like being hypervigilant, um, being overly angry, um, having problems getting to sleep, falling asleep. So your body is basically on that, that um, extreme base, baseline change that I was talking about. 
Um, then you see the, so like on high, they're on high alert exactly, all the time, all the time. Um, then we see the avoidance symptoms, which are kind of I see as secondary to those other ones, right? You don't want to be experiencing all that stuff all the time, and so you start avoiding. Right. Right. So you're avoiding people, places and things, conversations that might remind you of the trauma. Right. You start isolating in your home. You start emotionally numbing out um, because you just don't want to feel right. Right. That makes Um, sense. So that really starts to shrink their their life. Exactly. Down. Does this lead to like depression? Oh, yeah. Because and within the DSM-5, they actually added kind of more mood based symptoms, which had previously been left out of the diagnosis. So you see those mood symptoms with kind of depression and the cognitive symptoms of, you know, changing the way that you see yourself in the world and people in it. So all of a sudden you don't feel you don't feel safe in your surroundings. You don't trust the people in your life, right? And these are all functions of going through the trauma that you did and really being exposed to these life-altering experiences, you know. And you put it really well with your role shrinking. I actually use that metaphor, right? Because, okay. because in the short term, avoidance makes sense, right? Well, I don't want to, you know, talk to this person or go by this thing because if I do, I'm going to be triggered, right? So I'll just avoid right. all those things. In the short term, it makes perfect sense. But like you said, over the long term, your world starts shrinking and shrinking and shrinking and becoming smaller and smaller to the point where the only place you feel safe is in your home. And even then, maybe it's a particular room, right? And wow. and we do see that that severe. I mean, that's a very severe um, example, but but you can imagine that happening. You know, we have we have our younger vets who you know they don't wind up going to their classes unless they can sit in the very back, right? If they come in and there's no seats in the back, they turn around and they leave, right? They're not, And, and that's because in the back, that's where they feel, they feel the most safe. Yeah, they can see all the exits. They can see everybody in front of them. They know a way to get out. They don't have anybody behind them, which is a big trigger for a lot of vets, having people behind them. Um, and so and, if they can't sit there, they'll just leave sometimes. Right. Okay. So right. they. So that's that hypervigilance. Exactly. That hypervigilance that um, that they're always on. So they're yeah. always looking for that, and and then that goes to that avoidance. Exactly. And then they just kind of play off of each other back and forth, and exactly. And it's it, it becomes like a very dangerous cycle. And you know, you see a lot with well, I can't go to my kid's birthday party because there's gonna be too many people, or mm-hmm. I can't go to a particular part of the city because there might be you know people of Middle Eastern origin, which right. would set me off. Right. Um, so just a lot of those types of things um, that we see with regards to that. Right. Right. Okay. Okay. And and then you know another the other question is is um, well, you know some people go to combat and they mm-hmm. come back and they don't have these issues and then other people come back and they do have these issues and i'm wondering if they know why do some people get post-traumatic stress disorder why do some people not yeah and so that's a really good question and there's not a, a perfect algorithm to determine that like we can't okay. predict with 100 percent certainty who's going to get it but there are some factors that we've been found to be involved um, so we always look at like kind of genetic determinants, right? And there's no PTSD gene, but some people are more wired or prone to get anxiety disorders in general, right? So if you come from a family with a history of anxiety disorders, you might be have this risk factor of developing an anxiety disorder, right? So you go into combat already with this predisposition, and then you get exposed to trauma, uh, okay. you might have a greater chance of getting PTSD, right? Okay. We also see some kind of environmental determinants. So 
you know, if you have a lot of social support back home and come from a pretty good family, it increases your risk of not getting PTSD. Oh, okay. Right. It's not 100%, like I said, but, you know, the more support that you have, the better kind of emotional disposition you have going in. Those are protective factors, as we like to put them. Right? Okay. Okay. So if someone has struggled with childhood trauma, they're more likely, when they get into those kind of situations, they're more likely to have post-traumatic stress. They could, yeah. So okay. if so if they go into it um, not having really worked through a lot of those issues, it could be a greater risk factor. Um, for some people who've gone through earlier abuse, they've developed a lot of resiliency factors, which can sometimes okay. be protective. So it's really, like I said, it's not black or white, but, but we do see that. So okay. kind of unworked through trauma previous to going into combat could could increase the risk of combat PTSD. So it kind of play both ways. It yeah. could be protective or, or it could be. Yeah, depending on, you know, the meaning that you've kind of gained from it, you know. And okay. um, other things is like how, you know, how supportive was the unit that you were in, right? Like how much support did you have in that situation? Like were your higher ups looking after you? You know, did you feel, you know what I mean? So some of those kind of um, unit situations. Um Let's see what else. And then kind of your basic stuff, like what you were exposed to. You know what I mean? Like certain types of trauma um, are more likely to cause PTSD. You know, so witnessing somebody close to you die and feeling like you could have done something. That's that's a big one. You know, right, So anytime right. that you can take on a sense of blame for the situation, even if it's not warranted, those those, those can be very likely to lead to PTSD. Um situations like being a prisoner of war where it's kind of like day in and day out exposure to, you know, torture and stuff like that. That's very predictive of PTSD. Um, but I think, and I think this is correct, but as I've understood, like the more deployments that you go on, the more exposure to more and more trauma and like not enough time to recover from that, the more, more, more chances of PTSD. You know? So, you know, um, what I've read a lot about is just the, in the military, the stigma about having PTSD, um, does that impact your work with veterans as well and, and getting help? And Oh, yeah. I mean, I think stigma mental health is, is huge, you know. Um, I think, surprisingly enough, with the younger guys, there has been some improvement. Okay, um, that's good to hear. So it's not perfect, but um, I think a lot of there's since there's been so much in the media about trying to get help and like the Wounded Warriors program and like really making it less stigmatized. We are seeing guys come in a lot quicker, right? Oh, so if you look good. at Vietnam era vets, we're still getting Vietnam era vets who are just now coming in for treatment, right? So they've had forty plus years of oh my goodness, right? Because with the with the VA, there was this stigma of like the VA is a bad place, don't go there, blah blah blah. And, you know, it took a while, I think, to get the treatment where it is now, you know, but as far as combat vets go, like the VA does have a really Im improving program to be able to treat that, you know, and so we do see a lot of the younger guys coming in sometimes only a year out from when they came back, sometimes five years, which is a huge improvement from 10, 20, 30, 40 years like right. we've seen in previous generations. So Yeah, and what I've seen, I mean, just from, from the outside as a mental health professional, mm -hmm. I've seen a ton of trainings and um, uh, seminars and workshops around working with combat veterans and working with PTSD mm -hmm. and putting that issue 
in the forefront, which is, I mean, I just think that's, that's awesome. Well, yeah. And, and actually we have like a lot of universities. So a lot of universities will have some type of program for like returning combat veterans, you know, to get special services, you know, and then get connected with, with treatment, you know, so there's a lot of more outreach that's occurring nowadays than there was previously. Okay. And so I think that works to destigmatize mental health treatment in general, you right. know, to come on in. But it's always a struggle. Um, we're always trying to find new ways of bringing people, getting them in sooner, you know. Getting them in faster, yeah. getting them the help. I mean, I would imagine the sooner they get in, the sooner they get help, the less their symptoms worsen. Exactly. And probably I would imagine um, PTSD symptoms wor- worsen over time as they are untreated, become harder to treat. They, they do because you start to see the consequences of PTSD, Right. Uh, okay. So you see those consequences to, you know, intergenerational trauma, right? So, you know, dad come home, comes home from war with PTSD, raises children, right? right. And then they suffer the consequences of, of dad having, you know, PTSD because all of a sudden they're not allowed to go play outside with their friends past five o'clock. They're not allowed to spend the night at somebody's house because that's too dangerous. You know, right. they're getting the brunt end of potential anger problems that, you know, the dad or the mom, you know, um, is experiencing. Um, And so you, and with that builds resentment and build, you know, so there's all this family, you know, issues that can occur, you know, with intergenerational trauma and and PTSD when it's untreated. What about when, so when a veteran does finally decide, okay, I need some help, Mm -hmm. um, how do they, where do you start with them and mm-hmm. how do you start to treat uh, post-traumatic stress? Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, within the context of the VA, you know, um, if veterans come in there, you know, they get they get seen by providers pretty quickly and then sent to the right clinic. So the clinic that I work in is the PTSD clinic. And so when veterans come to us, it's kind of under the understanding that we're going to focus on your trauma, right? So we do a lot of trauma, trauma focused treatments in the PTSD clinic. Um, mm-hmm. If a particular patient's not ready for that, then they get sent to a different clinic to kind of do the work to get there. Okay. What might, what might be some of the symptoms that right. they aren't ready? I mean, it- right. So, so if they're, so if they're like, if they have a substance abuse problem, that is just too out of control. Um, we won't start doing trauma focused therapy, right? Because, um, you know, if they're using alcohol or substances too much to where it's detrimental, their brain's not going to be able to function in the way that we need it to, to do the traumatic processing. And we don't want to trigger them to the point where they're going to be using, you know, substances in in a really unsafe way. I think it's a difficult balance to achieve because we have a lot of veterans who use alcohol and other substances in order to avoid, right? That avoidance escaping. So this would go back into that avoidance is where they get into either addictive substances, addictive Mm -hmm. behaviors to cope, which makes a lot of sense. So we see adrenaline junkies, we see, you know, alcohol substance use problems, you know, just trying to basically get away from the painful emotions that they don't want to be feeling, those thoughts that they don't want to be having, right? Right. You know, and so if those problems are too severe, it's not a good mix to start doing trauma therapy right away. We like to get those under control. That doesn't mean somebody has to be abstinent by any means. It's just really taking precautions against those super high-risk situations. 
Right. 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 And so that's, it's always a dance. It's a balance between finding that, that kind of sweet spot to be able to start doing that with somebody who has right. a substance or addictive problem. Um, right. I would imagine. I mean, when, when I'm working with clients here, they may not be combat veterans, but they may have experienced some other kind of trauma mm-hmm. or childhood trauma. And a lot of times uh, the addiction is almost a symptom of that underlying mm-hmm. post-traumatic stress. And um, I would imagine that would be a lot with combat veterans as well. Oh, I mean, definitely. You know, I, people, you know, going into the, you know, going into the military without substance use problems and then they come out and then they have them, you know. So I right. think I might be a little bit off on the numbers, but I believe it's something like 22% of veterans with PTSD also have a, a co-occurring substance abuse problem. Wow. So okay. it's pretty high. Yeah. I mean, that's not saying they're dependent. It just means that there's, you know, there's an associated you know, right. comorbid disorder. Um, so, yeah, so it is a balance with that. But when, but when somebody is found to be a, a good fit and kind of ready to come in, um, we do have what we call gold standard treatments, okay. which um, we have prolonged exposure therapy, which I'm a big fan of. And then we have cognitive processing therapy. I like cognitive processing therapy in group situations. I think it works really well. Can, can you explain yeah. what those are a little bit? So, so. Um, so basically... They're manualized treatments, right? So people familiar with cognitive behavioral therapy, they're kind of offshoots of that, right? And as a psychodynamic therapist myself, I was initially resistant to like, oh, manualized therapies, Um, you know, and, but I think in a situation where we only get, you know, 12 to 15 sessions with somebody, they can be helpful in in that respect to really getting down to business, right? right? Like. It's not perfect um, by any means, but I think there's a lot of really great elements that tackle exactly what PTSD is. So for prolonged exposure therapy, it really goes off the theory that it's an avoidance, right? And so prolonged exposure tackles the avoidance both with experiencing the trauma itself and then also tackles the avoidance of things in their everyday life, Right. right? So I like to think of it as, you know, a filing system. And, you know, we have ways of filing the things that we experience every day, right? We go to a restaurant, we know that that filing system, right? You walk into a restaurant, you meet the hostess, you get seated, you order your food, you eat, you tip, you leave, right? We have a schema for that. We don't remember every time we went to a restaurant. That would be crazy, right? Right. But we have a filing system for that. But with trauma, there's no order to trauma. Even if you go through 50 different traumas, they're different every time. It's chaos. And our brain does not know how to file that correctly. And so those, those memories are bouncing around, always trying to get out in situations that are very unwelcome to us, right? Right, right. And so what this therapy does is it's a way of learning how to file the trauma away. It doesn't erase it, but it's saying, like, this trauma is in this drawer, and I can bring it out when it's appropriate, but I'm not going to let it come out when it's not. Okay, right? so, so they have some uh, cognitive control over... yeah. And um, when they choose to experience this exactly. or it gives them some power over it. It does. And it's not, like I said, it's not 100%. I never tell somebody, like, you're never going to have a symptom again because that's just not realistic. But it's saying you're not going to experience them as much and at the same intensity that you're going to, right? And so what prolonged exposure does is there's two parts, right? So there's the part where we we pick kind of the worst trauma, you know, knowing that the effects of processing that worst trauma is going to generalize to some of the other traumas, right? Right. Um, you pick the worst trauma, and basically you you talk through it repeatedly, 
many, many times, right? Because you're training your brain to make sense out of it. Right. right. And you're, you're and these are often things that people have never talked about. You know, you have World War II vets coming home who haven't talked about this stuff in decades. And it might be the first time that they ever say something. Wow. Right. So they've been carrying this around. And as we know as therapists, like thinking about something in our mind is not the same thing as saying it out loud. Right. It's a different level of processing. Right. right? There's something powerful about yeah. giving it a spoken voice and having someone else witness that voice. Right. The witnessing and being able to put it in chronological order, right? right? Because oftentimes the way we remember something is so jumbled that we start making all these kind of biases. Like we think it happened in a different way than when we actually put it out there, right? And so what will often happen is each time you tell it, somebody will remember something different, you know, like a new thing will come to light and it will make something click, Right. You know, and plus they're desensitizing themselves to it. Those images are no longer scaring them as much, right? So I look at it as the first time you see a scary movie, you're freaked out because you don't know what's happening, right? That you hear the scary music, you don't know what's behind the door, you don't know when the bad guy is going to jump out. You see that movie 50 times, it's not going to scare you. Right. Right. And so it's kind of that general premise of we're desensitizing you to this thing that's causing you fear when you don't need to be scared anymore because. You're not in that situation. You are no longer unsafe. It can be a sad memory. It can be a dis- like it can be one that causes you, you know, anger to think about. But it's not actually unsafe to have that memory. So not not so much fear based. There can be the grief, the loss, the exactly. sadness, but the fear of just experiencing that is is less. Right. Is that- you, you detach the experience of having the memory from actually going through the trauma. Right. And when you do that, you lessen the triggers in your environment. Right. So you're no longer being triggered as much by that sound or seeing a particular type of person or being in a crowd. Right. Right. And so that's that's kind of the first part of prolonged exposure therapy. So the repeated traumatic processing. The second part is pushing yourself past the avoidance in your everyday life. Right. So you set up this kind of desensitization hierarchy of things that you avoid in your life. And one by one, you go through them and make yourself do it, right? Right, So this is kind of, veterans do not like this, and nor should they. But really, it's kind of the basis of all anxiety treatments. Like, you expose yourself, right? At some point or another, you have to do it. Totally. Um, You know, with when you're not on a time crunch, you have more time to be able to kind of organically get to that. But in these treatments, it's really saying we have X amount of sessions, and if you want to make some progress, we really need to just throw you out there and teach you that it's safe. Right. So right? it'd be like the example of um, you you'd mentioned about, you know, sitting in the back of the classroom. So maybe they'll sit one seat up from the back or. Yeah. So I would make a hierarchy with them. Right. So what is like, you know, what is a hundred on your fear scale? And they might say sitting in the very front, in the middle, you know, showing up late. Okay. So that's what we're going to work up to. Right? right. So maybe, you know, week one, I have them sit you know, in the middle, but closest to the the end of the row so they could leave, right? Right. And we just teach them to sit with the discomfort, right? Distress tolerance in some ways. Right, distress tolerance, And, um, you know, really sitting there long enough until the anxiety drops by 50, right? So if you're sitting in that seat and you're, you know, your fear, your anxiety is at a 75, well, then if you have to wait there 45 minutes for it to drop to a 50, then that's what you got to do. But slowly they're changing that baseline, right, that I talked about, that kind of neurological baseline 
by doing those situations, they're teaching themselves that they're actually safe. And then your nervous system catches up with that eventually. Okay. Right? Okay. So it, it so takes a commitment from them. It really does. To, to do this. And, and I can definitely say, you know, none of us want to go into our discomfort. No. <laughs> and it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of courage. It takes a mm-hmm. lot of um, to do that. So I, I imagine for them that that's definitely, um, you know, you kind of guess, I guess you got to kind of be their cheerleader. You, you really, and that is a big, and you're totally right. That's a really big part of it. And that's where the therapeutic relationship really comes into play about, you know, in that situation, being able to connect with your patient pretty quickly to get them to trust you that you know what you're talking about. Right. And you're not going to put them in any situations that are dangerous for them. Um, and so really, you have to build that trust. You do, right and with away. only twelve to fifteen sessions, you have to do it very quickly, right? right? Yeah. And so, um, it really is about them trusting you that you're not going to put them in harm's way, and you really being a cheerleader. So when they do something right, it's like you really let them know that they're doing it. You know, that's awesome, right? Because it is. You know, it right. really is. And you know, if they aren't able to meet that goal, you look at the barriers. Like, what happened? Try to understand it, and then. Don't let them back away from it. Right. You you can't let them back away because that reinforces that they can't do it. That reinforces right. that that situation just too hard. It's too dangerous. Never mind. Right. You can't do that. You have to say, okay, you're going to go back out and do that same thing again. Wow. Okay. And so and, it's, and, and it's over tricky. time, <laughs> yeah, I would imagine. Yeah. I would imagine you got to really judge that that right. You can't judge too much. You got to hit it right in that zone yeah where they can be successful but push themselves at the same time exactly you know so it is it is judging that and it's and it's also trying to the extent that you can getting their family and friends on board right Uh, so so their family knows like they're going through some pretty heavy duty treatment right now you know and not to enable their avoidance but to again be cheerleaders be supportive you know but also knowing like I always warn patients with this treatment is like, you're going to see your symptoms go up for a little bit, right? It has to get worse before it gets better. Right. And so every step of the way, I'm trying to provide them with a little bit of psychoeducation about what their experience of going through this treatment is like so they know that it's normal, right? Because sometimes you get people coming in, if they're not ready for it, they're like, this treatment sucks. My symptoms got worse. I'm not sleeping. But if they expect that, like, oh, this is what's supposed to happen, and then once they get past that midpoint, they start to see improvement. They're like, okay, right? Because you can imagine with this treatment, you get a lot of dropout. Yeah, right? I, would, so, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, and so you really have to do a good job about, you know, selling the treatment in the beginning, explaining how it works, the premise of why it works, connecting with that patient to get them on board, to get them through this. And it's it's tricky. Like, it's really hard. There's times as a therapist when you're like, I can't push this patient to tell that story again, but you have to because you know, like, okay, maybe by the 10th time they tell this, they're going to get through that point where they're not crying anymore, where they're not getting angry anymore, where they're not having to step out and walk, you know, like sit down again, you know, but it's, and it's painful, but when you see it work, you know, it works, you know, what's it like when you, you know, when clients have gone through this and, and, it's successful. What do you What do you see? I mean, for me, I think it's really cool because I'll see, you know, I'll have patients connect with me later, you know, and come back and be like, I was able to go to my daughter's school play. I was able to see her, you know. I was able to take my wife on a date and not leave if the restaurant's too crowded, you know. So, so they start like to get their life back. They do, you know, and they're like, 
you know, I only had one nightmare last week, which is awesome, you know, from going from one, from having repeated nightmares every night to one nightmare a week, they were ecstatic, you know, and that's why I always say, like, it's rarely is it going to be 100%, like, you're going to have symptoms, but that's just part of the acceptance of, like, I know I'm going to have symptoms, but I know that if I go through this, they're not going to happen as often, and they're not as going to be as severe, and I think to a lot of guys walking around with PTSD, they would love that. Right. You know? Yeah. So what would you tell if someone's listening to this podcast and either they're they're they know someone who's a combat veteran with possibly PTSD or mm-hmm. they are themselves, what would you what would you tell them? What message would you want to give them? You know, I think it's just that you don't have to keep living like this. You know what I mean? Like you don't always have to be experiencing these symptoms at such heights. You don't always have to feel like you have to isolate yourself. Like you don't always have to feel like you're dead inside and that you've lost who you are. You know, like people do get a sense of like, quote unquote, their old selves back. You know, like I think it's so sad when people are just numbed out for their entire life. And when you go through this, people often say that that's one of the most meaningful things is getting the ability to feel back. Oh, okay. You know, and um, because you can't experience the good without experiencing the bad, right? You can't just numb one part of your emotional spectrum out, right? Right. And so once you learn that you're able to go through the bad stuff without cracking, you can experience the good stuff too, you know? And so for people out there, just, you know, there's always treatment available to you if you just ask for it, you know? It's not easy. I'm not saying it's easy by any means. It's a... It's painful to go through, but it's one of those things of if you go through that initial pain and, and, and stuff, you can come out the other end, you know? And if you're not ready right away to start with the trauma stuff, there's other stuff out there too. So we have a lot of mindfulness um, stuff at the VA, you know, mindfulness groups that are not focused on the trauma itself, but about, you know, mindfulness and relaxation and kind of more symptom management stuff. We have a lot of that at the VA um, that people do to get ready to do the more trauma-focused therapies. You know, out in the non-VA world, there's a lot of practitioners who can see you for an extended amount of time. So maybe you start off with not the trauma-focused stuff, but more just life stuff until you get comfortable enough to talk to your provider about the trauma and the war. Um, So whatever pace you're ready for, there is a treatment option out there you just have to find it. Right. You know, so and reach a lot out of, for, reach out yeah. for help and, and get that, get that help. Yeah. It's, it's out there. Just, yeah. Just so coming yeah. to VA is going to vet centers. I would say a lot of the, the private practice or group practice practitioners out there, even if they don't have experience with combat trauma, they will have experience with trauma of some sort. Right. right. And there's a lot of crossover, you know, I mean, there is some particulars to working with combat vets, but I think if there's a good therapeutic relationship, it's not a necessity to have training specifically in combat trauma, right? If that's what's available to the patient and they like their therapist, then you go with that, right? you know? So there's a lot of great websites out there, you know, Wounded Warriors, the, you know, National PTSD website, the government website gives you a lot of information about um, the treatments that are out there, you know, vet centers are also a really good place to go. And and if someone is in really dire straits, mm-hmm. where can they reach out if they if they really need help right now? 
Um, I mean, there's always the Veteran Suicide Hotline. I wish I had that number on me right now, but I'm sure you could Google it really quickly <laughs> to what get we'll that. What we'll do is we'll, we'll put it in the show yeah. notes so they can um, they can go to the website. and They can go to theaddictedmind.com slash eight. Okay. And that will be, that's, that, that's where all these resources will be um, located. So we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll look that up and put that in there too. Um, so if anybody's out there and, and you're struggling – Please reach out, get some help. If anybody wanted to contact you or email you, or how could they do that? Well, as a VA psychologist, we don't necessarily give out okay. that information just to kind of, there's a system at the VA for how things are handled in emergencies, um, just because they found a system that works. Right. right. Okay. Um, so basically, you know, if somebody is in very dire need and you're a veteran, show up at the the VA's ER, right? You let them know like, hey, I'm having suicidal thoughts. Hey, I'm having homicidal thoughts. And they will get you in and they will get you into the right place. So go to the VA, Mm -hmm. get help. It's there. And obviously, if this is an immediate crisis right now in this moment, please call 911. Get help. There is hope. Um, I just want to thank you so much for coming on to the addicted mind and being part of this and and sharing your knowledge. You know, I just appreciate so much our veterans who have sacrificed so much that we give them the best care that we, we absolutely can. So I just appreciate you coming on and and sharing your knowledge and taking your time to do that. So thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm very passionate about working with vets and combat PTSD. And I think it's always a learning process that we're learning more and more about. And um, I think that's what makes treatment better and better over time. So thank you for having me. (laughs) Have a wonderful day, everyone. Thank you so much for listening today. And I wanted to add some resources to the end here. Um, If you or someone you know is struggling with combat-related post-traumatic stress and is a veteran, they can reach out to the Veterans Crisis Line at theveteranscrisisline.net or they can call their number at 1-800-273-8255. Reach out to them and get the support that you need. Okay? Thank you very much. And I'm Michaela, and we're the hosts of the Two Sober Girls podcast, and we are on a mission to spill the wild truth about sobriety. Forget the rosé all day cliche. Sobriety is flipping amazing. Absolutely. It's not just about quitting the drink. It's a gift you give yourself and your loved ones. So what are you waiting for? Break up with that old toxic relationship with alcohol and let us show you the possibilities. And here's the thing. Everything your precious heart desires becomes way easier without the influence of alcohol. We're not just two sober girls. We're also wellness coaches. We're here to show you how to optimize health, lifestyle, and beauty, feel sexy and alive as F. So stay tuned because we're rolling out new episodes every Monday, wherever you get your podcasts and trust us. They have your name written all over them. We can't wait to share the magic of sobriety and wellness with you. Subscribe to Two Sober Girls Podcast today and come follow us on Instagram for behind the scenes action and send us a DM. We can't wait to meet you.